0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues and our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. Uh, More so than for many other areas, the management of water resource is an important aspect of public policy and politics. And today we're actually going to try to identify some of the common themes of the relationship between water, politics, governance, in contemporary China and the rest of the world. Here in the studio today with me is Dr. Scott Moore. He is the director of the Penn Global China Program at University of Pennsylvania. His first book, Subnational Hydropolitics: Conflict, Cooperation, and Institution Building in Shared River ba- Basins, examines how climate change and other pressures affect the likelihood of conflict over water within countries. Uh, We'd like to especially thank Princeton Center on Contemporary China for sponsoring this episode and for connecting us with Dr. Moore. Thank you so much for joining us today, Scott. Thanks so much, Tiger. Really a pleasure to be here. So, Scott, you are giving a talk today in Princeton titled, Hydropolitics in China, Water Conflict Development and Sustainability in a Rising Power. Since most of our listeners won't get to be there, uh, would you mind just giving us a quick overview of, for your talk and even uh, some of the topics you covered in your book? Uh, yeah, absolutely, Tiger. And th- thanks again for
1: for the opportunity to be here. And thanks to the, the China Center also. It's always a real pleasure for me to, to come back to Princeton. Um, so hydropolitics uh, isn't a phrase you know that, that most people would know what that means. Um, it certainly is a little bit of a mouthful. Um, but it basically just refers to the politics of how uh, we use water uh, and manage it and govern it. Um, and that's uh, also a topic that not a lot of people spend a whole lot of time thinking about. But it does turn out to be a really important sort of piece of economic development um, and of public policy uh, in many places around the world, um, including and, and in many ways, especially in China. Um, so I can certainly say a little bit about that. But I thought uh, since I imagine um, at least uh, some of uh, your audience might be students to so just just say a, a, a couple Words about how I became interested in this topic because it is a little bit uh, it is a little bit uh, uh, specialized. Um, I actually gave a um, similar talk uh, earlier this week at Bryn Mawr College outside Philadelphia, where where I live. And um, a student came up to me and, and asked me how did you sort of end up going down this rabbit hole of <laughs> uh, of, of water politics in China. Um, and uh, uh, I think it's a, it's a fair question. And the answer really is that when I was uh, uh, in college here at Princeton, I, I was really interested in climate change uh, and, and sort of uh, climate policy. Um, and at some point, it sort of dawned on me um, as uh, I was trying to sort of understand the effects of climate change that uh, at least from the point of view of, of humans, um, one of the, the most concerning aspects of climate change Uh, is how it will change or how the the processes related to climate change um, will alter the distribution and availability of water. Uh, In some places, that'll mean that we have uh, too much uh, and we can expect more flooding, but in other uh, other places, it'll mean we'll have uh, less than we used to, uh, and so we'll have to adjust uh, to conditions of water scarcity. And when you uh, think about that, kind of challenge in the context of China, um, something that that's uh, uh, you immediately kind of run up against is that uh, China uh, essentially is the source for almost all of Asia's major rivers. Uh, and those rivers, uh, the Yangtze, the Yellow, the Mekong, uh, et cetera, uh, are really sort of, uh, they're so fundamental to uh, the economy, to people's livelihoods, uh, even to sort of... Uh, uh, kind of history and culture that you almost don't even think about them. Um, but if you think about what will happen to, uh, to those water bodies and other water resources in Asia uh, as a result of climate change, um, you really uh, start to run up against some very frightening scenarios. And essentially what uh, climate science uh, predicts Uh, is that as we start getting uh, around to about 2050 and then heading out toward the end of the century, uh, you'll get a large uh, increase in the flow of large rivers uh, like the Yangtze, the Yellow, the Mekong, the Brahmaputra, as uh, the glaciers and snowfields in the the high Himalaya melt. Um, But then after that, um, the flow of those major rivers will uh, fall off very sharply. Um, and so, you know, if we think about the implications of that for uh, agriculture, for the environment, for ecology um, across most of China, as well as Southeast Asia, India, et cetera, it's really concerning. So that's really what kind of launched me into thinking about, um, into thinking about these issues um, and being really interested in sort of how, as a matter of public policy, um, China, as well as its neighboring countries, tries to deal with water challenges.
0: Um, in your last article published in the China Quarterly, you mentioned three preliminary themes seen through Chinese history about the relationship between water policy and governance. Uh, two of them talk about sort of the dynamic between people and the rulers regarding water policy. And the state may use water resources as a strategy of rule, um, but the task of policy management may also directly challenge the state. So, for example, there's this old Chinese saying that, saying the uh, Water can bear the water that bears the boat is the same that swallows it mm-hmm. up, sort of describes the relationship between the people and the mm-hmm. authorities. So could you explain a bit more about the sort of close relationship between water policies and governance as you highlighted the importance of this in explaining the issue of, of water in, in several papers that you wrote before?
1: Yeah, well, and, and this is uh, another kind of aspect of my interest in this, this kind of issue of water, um, water issues, particularly in China, because um, water, uh, you know, here in the U.S., uh, we tend to think of water as a pretty local concern. You know, if you're from California or from uh, Arizona or Nevada, uh, you're probably, and you're, you know, a politician or a civic leader, uh, you probably would be concerned about water in many ways, but if you live here in New Jersey, you might only be concerned about it to the extent that you're worried about pollution or something like that. For China, though, uh, water was very much in the minds of uh, China's original uh, the people, the, the the founding kind of leaders of the People's Republic, um, and the reason for that is that they uh, came to power uh, essentially through a guerrilla movement. You know, if you go back to the 1930s. Uh, the communists were essentially fighting an insurgency uh, against both the Japanese and the uh, nationalist uh, government. And when you're an insurgent, uh, an insurgent movement, you have to find some way of appealing to uh, local populations for support. And the region, the place that uh, they were doing this, the, the early kind of leaders of, of the Chinese Communist Party, um, Mao, Zhou Enlai, etc., was essentially the Greater Yellow River Basin. And if you were a peasant farmer uh, in that region in the 1930s, probably your two biggest concerns would have been flooding and drought. Um, that you know, historically, going back hundreds, and, uh, in some cases thousands of years, you know, it's always been a uh, a kind of scourge for um, for peasant farmers in in that in North China. Um, but so, as uh, leaders trying to appeal to local people for support, two of the things that um, they found that people really cared about um, were protection from flooding and aid in times of drought, both of which obviously are fundamentally about water. And so when the People's Republic was founded, uh, the, the senior uh, leadership uh, immediately made water issues a major priority for um, development uh, of uh, what they called New China or, you know, uh, communist, uh, uh, communist China. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the People's Republic was, was founded in October of 1949. One of the very first policy conferences that was called by uh, Zhou Enlai uh, occurred in November 1949, and it was, was all the prime about. prime minister. Yeah, uh, correct, correct, um, uh, and uh, that was all about uh, water conservancies, irrigation, um, uh, and water uh, agricultural water supply. So it it's just an issue that was, for historical reasons, very important. Um, to the development of um, politics and economy in China. Um, And that has, to some extent, persisted um, all the way to the present. Uh, Hu Jintao was originally trained as a hydropower engineer, Um, so uh, very familiar with water issues. And under uh, Xi Jinping, um, uh, water has continued to be a priority, especially water pollution and water quality. So in any case, uh, I do think that in China, uh, more so than in most countries, there's this close link between water politics and governance.
0: What about in terms of foreign policy? Like, is China ever using uh, water issues as leverage in negotiations, like, like with India or Pakistan? Like, I ask this because Tibet has has a huge amount of water reserve, and, and part of the reason why Tibet is such a contentious and politicized issue seems to be because of water. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, you know, this is certainly uh, something a lot of people – Think about, um, and you hear quite often um, in uh, neighboring countries. So, uh, very particularly in the, the Indian media, uh, every week essentially there's some type of article you know that that sort of accuses uh, China of trying to sort of steal India's water because many of the of India's rivers uh, originate in Chinese territory. Um, to a lesser degree, you you see the same types of allegations and stories. Um, with respect to the Mekong, Southeast Asia. Um, I think um, in terms of deliberate actions that China has taken, I, I really don't think there are many <laughs> um, good examples of that. Uh, I, I mean, the the Chinese government has historically um, been a little, I would say, tone deaf when it comes to the concerns of neighboring countries around water. So they've, they've sort of tended to be very dismissive of Uh, concerns about uh, environmental or social impacts of building dams, which is the main concern. Um, They've also tended to be historically reluctant to um, enter into multilateral discussions. There's been a preference to uh, engage individual countries um, uh, directly. So rather than joining like a Mekong regional initiative, uh, uh, the Chinese government will prefer to uh, talk directly to the, v- the governments of, you know, for example, Vietnam and Laos about, um, uh, about water issues. Um, so there, there certainly are those tensions, but I actually, uh, I, I don't often find myself sort of defending, uh, you know, the actions of, <laughs> uh, of uh, Beijing, but I think in this case, I don't think there's been a lot of deliberate um, uh, provocation. Um, I think it's more just sort of a, um, a lack of sensitivity um, with respect to water issues. One more, just quick thing I'll say on this because I think oftentimes um, uh, these issues are, are sort of somewhat misunderstood. You know, the way so the the main concern about China's uh, role with um, these uh, major rivers in Asia is that you're building dams, and usually the story goes that um, since China is building these dams, it can sort of cut off or interrupt the flow of water um, downstream to neighboring countries. Um, that Often misunderstands how rivers actually sort of flow and work from a, a scientific or a hydrological perspective. The way that rivers uh, uh, work is that they accumulate water as they flow. You know, water uh, rivers have very large uh, catchment areas or basins, and so they sort of collect water from these these large areas. And so, uh, essentially, you can think of rivers as uh, uh, growing in volume as they go along. And what that means is that if you have a river that starts in China but ends in Vietnam or in India, a lot of the water in those rivers actually comes from Indian or Vietnamese territory. Um, So it's not as simple as it might sound for China to just sort of cut off the flow of rivers downstream, even if it wanted to, which I don't think it does.
0: (laughs) I think this is a fascinating point because you mentioned how a lot of Indian rivers, they actually originate Mm -hmm. from China. And that got me into thinking, as technology advances, the boundary between countries gets kind of blurred because mm-hmm. the transfer of information, or even immigration these days, between different nations is so easy. But something like water, if, it's, if it originated from China, it's going to continue to originate from China. And it's not going to come from India. And if India down the road needs something, some water, it's going to need it from China. <coughs> and if some geopolitical conflict arises, that adds a lot of complexity to it so I, i'm curious to hear how how you think how you envision the future of water politics do you see it really becoming a source of cooperation or conflict or adding huge burden to certain countries that don't have any of those water resources that uh, originate from from their own
1: well yeah no uh, it's, a, it's a it's a very important question of course and and one of the Themes I try to sort of touch on in, in the book is that I do think water um, is actually more likely uh, to be a source of cooperation than conflict, and I think in many ways it's better uh, suited to uh, generating cooperation rather than rather than conflict. Um, you mentioned sort of technology, and I do think that's important because oftentimes, and you know, I, I consider myself an environmentalist, so I, I don't, um, you know, mean to. Uh, kind of disparage uh, uh, environmentalists. But I think one thing that environmentalists often kind of get wrong when they're um, talking about resource uses, whether it's water or uh, forests or, um, uh, or uh, you know, sort of energy or something like that, is you tend to sort of assume that the supply of a resource is static um, and that there's no way to um, uh, kind of... Uh, Change how you use a resource either through technology or trade, and so when you look at water, um, it's it's not the case that China or India or any other country has to physically possess all the water that it needs to grow all of its crop to grow the crops that um, that that it needs to feed its people and to um, power its economy because we have trade. And so China can buy most of the soybeans it uses to feed livestock, for example, from the U.S., using water in the U.S., uh, not in China. And so you have these sort of dynamic effects. Um, and I think the two biggest are, are you know, technological change and, and trade and comparative advantage that make it not, not a sort of uh, – that mean that you can't look at things like water resource uh,
0: endowments as a sort of static quantity. You mentioned technological innovations. Do you mean uh, r- innovations related to water? Because I, I know this geographer, John Anthony Allen, at King's College London, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard do, of him. I do, yeah. He developed this idea of virtual, virtual water. water a yeah. few years ago. And there's just a lot of innovations related to water being developed these days. So do you see them potentially solving the, the urgent issues of you know, water shortage or... Uh, pollution. Do you kind of see tech completely changing the scene?
1: Um, uh, and so, well, for uh, just to kind of kick off, virtual water is exactly what um, uh, what I mean when I say sort of trade can help uh, can help um, uh, uh, address local water shortages or water scarcity. Um, and and credit definitely goes to Tony Allen as being the sort of inventor of that concept. Um, uh, I think technology does have um, uh, a large role to play. And there are some really interesting, promising technologies out there. Most of them relate to agriculture. So worldwide uh, and in China, uh, agriculture uh, accounts for about two-thirds of water use, 70% really, um, of water use. And so if we're thinking about kind of water scarcity or water shortages, we're really concerned mostly about agriculture and how much uh, water you need to grow crops. Um, Now, you know, if we're sort of thinking about technology as it stands now and sort of from a static point of view, um, there's there's a lot of reason for concern because um, uh, we do have, you know, essentially a a, a fixed quantity of uh, of water in in um, uh, in major river basins uh, like the yellow, the Yangtze. uh, yet at the same time, that water supply is getting more variable because of climate change and demand for crops is increasing because of population growth, et cetera, et cetera. So if you look at this picture from a static point of view, you might get really concerned. But if you think about it from a dynamic point of view um, and think about technological change, it becomes a little more hopeful. So, for example, um, if you do vertical farming, so if, for example, you um, grow crops not in a field out in the open, but you grow them in a specially designed greenhouse, and you use artificial uh, lighting, you use uh, very precise uh, uh, quantities of of water, fertilizer, other nutrients to grow uh, crops, essentially in a climate-controlled environment, you can cut uh, water use by uh, up to 95% over what you would need in in a field. Um, So there are definitely ways that technology can drastically uh, reduce the amount of water that you would need for um, agriculture and crops. Right now, that's totally economically infeasible. Um, it's just enormously more costly um, uh, to do it that way, um, sort of artificially, if you want to put it that way, rather than naturally. Um, but you know, and, and just the last point I'll make, you could definitely see that changing uh, if we start to raise energy prices, For example, if we have a carbon tax, or if we were to raise water prices, that would change the economics and could make something like vertical or indoor farming uh, much more economically uh, viable.
0: I want to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on international cooperation, um, especially when it comes to water. Because water or climate change, I mean, it doesn't seem like we're seeing a trend of cooperation among all kinds of countries on climate change. I mean there's this idea that basically says as long as each country um, thinks about every issue based on their own interests, it's not incentivized for many countries to engage in climate change discussions because if America has a disaster because of climate change, Russia benefits, right? They don't want to solve this thing. <laughs> so that's, that's when the humanity is not thinking as for the interests of the humanity, but rather countries thinking in the interest of their own. So when it comes to water, are you actually optimistic that countries will all step up and India and Pakistan, China and all, all those countries will come together and say it's it's actually time for cooperation? And uh,
1: So, I, yeah, I, I actually, I, I think I am um, with respect to water, although the fact that you kind of raised it um, kind of in the context of, of climate change um, is is important and it's significant because um, I think that there are, we actually do have, for the most part, solutions, um, including technological solutions to most water problems that we have. The challenge comes in when you think about balancing uh, different environmental objectives, especially something like cutting greenhouse gas emissions. So just for example, you know, the vertical farming Thing I mentioned, one of the reasons it's so expensive is that it requires a lot of energy because you're essentially replacing the free light that you get from the sun with uh, artificial uh, UV light,
0: and so energy costs are really high. By the way, we visited a lab um, a couple couple weeks ago that that had this this kind of innovation. The device. Oh, cool! It was very nice. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well,
1: uh, and so you know, if you're thinking about if that Energy if, that that you need to to uh, to generate all that uh, artificial light is coming from burning coal uh, or something like that. You're you're exerting a a, a non-trivial uh, uh, kind of climate impact. And so, if you're thinking about uh, the a water problem, not just in the context of water, but in the context of more kind of global sustainability, um, you're really talking about weighing these different trade-offs. And that's where I think water problems start to uh, start to get quite challenging, as if you're trying to say, how can we build sort of a, a really sustainable uh, framework to deal not just with water challenges, but also um, energy challenges, food security challenges. Um, it, it's a difficult balance. Is action. it possible
0: ever, ever to get people to come together to address those issues at the same time? Because you said there are different priorities and objectives, mm-hmm. and it's hard to reach a balance.
1: It is. I think it's possible, but I think it's going to require at least one of two major changes. Um, one is technological. So if we do get um, either new technologies or we improve current technologies to the point where they make um, uh, they make it a lot cheaper to use and store, you know, renewable power. For example, um, in the context of water, if we could get um, renewable power desalination to work. So if you have uh, desalination uh, plants that can be run using uh, s- some type of solar power, for example, um, that, that's a pretty sustainable solution actually um, that could help cities in particular um, deal both with water shortages as well as um, reduce their, um, uh, their greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so, but I think we would, we would have to have some major technological change. And then I think the second factor that I think we would need is more uh, popular pressure um, on, um, on governments and on politicians to uh, address environmental issues. And I do think, um, you know, polling data suggests that younger people like millennial and post-millennial generations do tend to um, take environmental issues seriously. They want governments to, uh, to act on these issues, whereas older v- voters tend to be not as concerned. They're more likely to say, well, I'm much more concerned about jobs or, you know, that type of thing. Um, so I think if you did have more political pressure from more people, and as millennials and post millennials become, um, you know, more significant voting constituencies and things like that, I do think that could change. That could change. I,
0: I totally resonate with that point. I, I was we were interviewing um, Commissioner Dan Berkovitz from the U.S. Commodity F- Futures Trading Commission, okay. and he was saying that he was at an energy conference. And the private sector is really feeling the pressure from the public uh, to, to step up on, on climate change. So you got big CEOs from Chevrons and all those big companies that sort of really making commitments. B- and during your time in US State Department, you, worked extensively on the Paris Agreement, which the U.S. withdrew from. And <laughs> yeah. this is we're all talking about this. I'm very curious. I mean, there's increasing pressure on the private sector to address climate change. There's increasing demand from young people. But we're not seeing as much, you know, we, we withdrew from the Paris Agreement. I mean, and the U.S. politics, you really can't tell. If we have another four years of President Trump, probably there won't, we won't make much progress when it comes to having government mandate to address those issues. So how do you reconcile those different tensions and forces.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's it's definitely a a, a tragic thing that uh, that the U.S. has announced it will withdraw. And I mean, this is a minor point, and I only I only make it to say that there is still some hope. Technically, the U.S. can't withdraw uh, from the Paris Agreement until 2021. Um, uh, so what uh, uh, the president has done is is announced the U.S. has is intending to withdraw and started the formal process, but technically. The U.S. remains within the Paris Agreement, which I, I always try to remind myself of uh, makes me feel better. But um, more more importantly, um, you know, the Paris Agreement was a great accomplishment in many ways. But I think you can also make a strong argument. It really didn't do what um, an agreement, an international climate agreement needs to do, which is set um, real binding emissions uh requirements for um, emissions reduction requirements for all major emitting countries. So uh, certain countries, the U.S., uh, most of the developed countries did undertake emissions reduction uh, pledges as part of the Paris Agreement, Um, but the agreement itself is explicitly not binding uh, in order (laughs) um, for the U.S. not to have agreed to or or not to have needed to submit it to the Senate where um, uh, the Obama Obama administration knew it, it would fail. Um, if, it, if it had to be submitted. And for China, the largest emitter in the world, um, they actually, the, the Chinese government did not agree to reduce emissions in any way. They simply agreed to peak them um, well before 2030. So my point in saying all this is I, I don't think anybody really thought the Paris Agreement itself was going to solve the climate problem. I think what people hoped, um, and, and I and I think many others still hope, is that it sends a powerful enough message to uh, investors to corporate executives to uh, politicians around the world that we do have this uh, climate crisis we need to deal with it countries are going to have to uh, reduce their emissions pretty dramatically how are we going to sort of work together to solve this problem but I guess my point is um, the agreement itself isn't really designed to solve the problem on its own what it is a designed to do is send the signal to others uh, to mobilize and, and help us kind of solve the solve the challenge. So in that respect you know the U.S decision to, to withdraw is tragic um, but in some ways we needed to find other we needed we needed greater action on the part of the people that you talked about executives and others anyway. Uh,
0: that got me to thinking another part is that the, the, the idea of public-private partnerships. Mm-hmm. Uh, people always criticize China for having the state hold si- significant power over almost every policymaking and legislative process, and the voice from the private sector is often absent. Uh, however, if we look at somewhere like Israel, right, Israel's development in water policy, the sli- state-led strategies of expanding this drip irrigation and desalination process laid a very concrete and good foundation for the later entrance of a lot of private companies, which seemed to be a very successful model. So h- what's your thought on the role of public versus private sector uh, when it comes to water, climate change, any of those political and innovative stuff?
1: Well, you, you absolutely need both. Um, and I think... Um I think, in many ways, this this kind of picture has has gotten more uh, more complicated. Um, you know, I think traditionally the idea was that if you think about a problem like climate change, you know, you do need certain technologies to kind of solve the problem, and, and this is true of water too, as you as you pointed out. Um, and when you look at technological development, you typically have um, both basic and applied research and development that needs to take place. You need basic research to develop the sort of Um, fundamental or underlying principles um, uh, that you can build uh, technologies off of. And then you need applied research to sort of figure out how you take those fundamental breakthroughs that you get through basic research and turn them into something that's commercially useful. And so the traditional kind of theory goes governments are better at basic, at funding basic research and development because the commercial payoff isn't usually clear, whereas companies are better suited to doing the applied research because they have a stronger motivation um, and and are better able to judge what's going to be commercially um, commercially successful I think when you look at problems like climate change though that formula it becomes a little bit less clear because many of the um, technologies that would that would help us solve the climate problem like fusion power um, are, uh, so complex and so um, uh, so long-term in terms of the development that even governments usually don't have the money uh, to really fund them. So I think one of the critical ways that we're going to have to – one of the critical solutions to, I think, climate change is developing some new model for how uh, companies and, and governments interact. There was, in, incidentally um, – At the time of the Paris Agreement, there was a parallel initiative called Mission Innovation that um, Bill Gates actually spearheaded. And his idea was that uh, he wanted to get um, uh, all kind of major countries to uh, pledge to double research and development spending on clean technology, um, especially clean energy, um, over the next, I believe it was a decade. I can't remember exactly the time scale. Um, But the logic was that we need to increase the amount of public money going into these problems. And then uh, his foundation pledged to, uh, to donate, I think it was about a billion dollars, to this effort too. And the idea was that you would um, leverage this government commitment to also get money from uh, major foundations and companies. And I think that's still the right model. Um, I don't think that particular initiative has been as successful as many hoped, um, partly, I think, because of the change in leadership here in the US. But that's another story. <laughs> awesome.
0: Have you ever thought about going to policy? What kind of advice would you give to policymakers today? Um, You know, I think
1: I'm – I used to work at the World Bank. and I I always kind of uh, uh, feel a little bit self-conscious talking about the use of economic – mechanisms because, uh, you know, I think that the World Bank uh, is often gets a, gets a reputation for always kind of saying, well, if, you know, you, you need to put a price on everything. But uh, I do think, especially when it comes to water, um, and, and I think in the case of energy too, you know, there's no silver bullet, but I think the single biggest piece of the puzzle is just trying to figure out how you can better reflect the economic externalities of water use and of carbon emissions, um, uh, in, in pricing those resources. Um, you know, I don't think, um, in most places around the world, government, China may be a a slight exception actually, but in most places, government regulation just isn't, governments just aren't strong and capable enough, um, to really change, uh, resource use and behavior. And so I think oftentimes you do, um, Pricing tends to be the most powerful way of doing that. Um, and, of course, there are lots of issues. You know, when you talk about something like water, uh, you need to make sure that you address um, uh, uh, socioeconomic issues. You need to make sure that you uh, you allow everyone to have access to some amount of water. So there there are lots of sort of ethical and, and uh, um, uh, equity-based issues you have to address. It's not – as you can't solve everything through uh, through putting a price on water, but I do think you have to – that's – You do have to start there in many ways.
0: Sounds great. Uh, So the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. So I have to ask you at the end of our show, what's the the policy punchline here? I think the policy punchline
1: is that when you think about – so first of all, I think when you think about environmental issues, you should think of climate change. And if you – when you think of climate change, you also
0: should think of water. I think that's my that's my takeaway punchline. That, sound, that sounds awesome. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today, Scott. Thanks so much, Tiger. A- and that's our interview with Dr. Scott Moore from University of Pennsylvania. If you'd like to learn more about hydropolitics, I highly encourage you to get go get his book, Subnational Hydropolitics Conflict Cooperation, Institution Building in Shared River Basins. We'd like to especially thank Princeton Center on Contemporary China for sponsoring this episode and for connecting us with Scott. Please follow Policy Punchline on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Twitter at Policy Punchline. Um, Rate us, review us. If you'd like to see more frequent comments and and updates we post, please visit us on PolicyPunchline.com. Thank you so much for listening today.